0: Think on your feet for our fast and curious 5K, a one-of-a-kind race hosted by WBEZ and the Chicago Sun-Times on Saturday, July 27th at Humboldt Park. More info and early bird registration at WBEZ.org/events. Did you know that the COVID pandemic decreased average life expectancy in the U.S. by 2.7 years? And for black and Hispanic people, that decline is more like four years. A lot of factors make up this unpleasant reality, but the bottom line is unequal access to health care in this country results in health disparities. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and this is Reset. One trauma surgeon writes about these inequities and the experiences of black patients in a new book titled the Bodies Keep Coming, dispatches from a black trauma surgeon on racism, violence, and how we heal. And we spoke with the author, Dr. Brian H. Williams, about how the American healthcare system continues to fail its black patients and how gun violence is playing a role. Dr. Williams is also running for Texas's 32nd congressional district in the U.S. House of Representatives. And I started by asking him why he wanted to share more than two decades of treating gun violence victims with readers.
1: I wanted to use this book with the narrative of being a trauma surgeon and being in health care to explore some of the bigger issues that are impacting our society. I had really grand ambitions uh, with the book, so I wanted to draw you in as a reader, show what it's like to be on the front lines of this epidemic of gun violence, but expand the concentric circles about what we discussed as far as the health care crisis and structural racism, and make it hopeful here is a roadmap to how we can heal as individuals and communities and as a nation.
0: Mm -hmm. Here in Chicago, you know, and across the country, we see attention paid to gun violence. It actually differs depending on where it happens, right? Whether it's in a majority white neighborhood or if it's in a black and brown neighborhood, and also depending on who the victims are. So explain the disconnect for us of of what you see on the news versus what you're seeing in the trauma unit.
1: Yeah, that's part of what's, really infuriates me about how we cover gun violence, because I think those of us that work in trauma recognize the shared humanity of all those that are victims and survivors of gun violence, but that narrative is is lost during the media coverage. So I really wanted to elevate the voices of the predominantly black victims and families and survivors that have been part of my practice uh, where, where I've chosen to work in these, these communities because gun violence, it's, it's multidimensional. We have multiple types of gun violence, We consider suicides and homicides and mass shootings. Mm-hmm. But the reality is that we are all at risk of being directly impacted ourselves or someone we know. So why don't you just open this up and explore the nuances so we can explore and expand how we discuss how we're going to solve this epidemic.
0: Yeah, we're also haunted by the phrase black-on-black crime, right? What comes to mind when you hear it? Uh,
1: First, I I cringe a little bit because that's
0: just,
1: just, uh, it's not, it's a trope, right? That uh, diminishes the humanity of black people. And I put in the book, I use statistics to show that uh, same-race-on-race crime is a product of proximity. It is not about any moral failings within certain racial and ethnic groups. And because we live in a society that is largely segregated by neighborhoods, race and ethnicity, Mm -hmm. violent crime occurs at the same rate between black people, white people, Asian Americans. These are stats from the Department of Justice, and as a result of historical redlining, uh, how we've kind of grouped ourselves into certain racial and ethnic groups in, in neighborhoods. So black-on-black black crime, we need to unpack that, what that means as a society, how we segregate ourselves, mm-hmm. and endemic violence occurs in certain communities.
0: But overall, black people are at higher risk of experiencing gun violence. So in your view, why do you think that is? And I think you've already started to allude to, to that.
1: Well, let's, let's unpack the different types of gun violence. So when we talk about Homicides, yes, Um, after 24 hours after this show is over, half of the homicide victims will be young black men. But When we talk about suicides, those are mostly elderly white men. Then, There's intimate partner violence where women who are with a domestic abuser who has access to a gun, they're five times more likely to be impacted by gun violence. Black women, three times more likely than their white counterparts. So, I think the real thing here is not just black people are at greater risk for gun violence mm-hmm. is that we as a country need to understand that there are different types of gun violence with different root causes which require different types of solutions.
0: Mm. You write about your grandmother and how emergency medical services refused to respond to calls in certain neighborhoods and uh, about how some Americans back in the 60s, how they feared a federal healthcare program would actually undermine the the status quo of of racial segregation. We know Medicaid became law back in 1965, but this history of of segregation in America, in American cities, it still has lasting impacts on access to health care. So what does that look like from your perspective as a medical professional, access?
1: The the access issue is a byproduct of we as a nation continuing to dichotomize patients and healthcare into those who deserve healthcare who can afford it and those that do not and these were choices that we made as a country it's not a not by accident so we can correct that and through story in my book I talk about my mother I'm sorry my grandmother mm-hmm. who had an asthma attack right treatable back then easily treatable. Uh, but needed to get to the hospital for treatment, but they would not send the medical services into the black neighborhood to take her to the hospital to uh, get treated. Which to me, we continue as a healthcare system to to ignore the history of how we are part of the healthcare crisis we are in now, and that's what I've wrestled with myself as a black doctor. How I've been part of that system, hence the quote, mm. the James Baldwin quote at the beginning. Like, I've learned to see the ugly side of the job I do, but now I want to be part of the solution to create justice in health care for all.
0: Mm. We got the Affordable Care Act in, in 2010. How does Obamacare fit into the picture of of fighting for, for greater access?
1: Oh, it's, it's, that's a tremendous improvement, right? We. Extended healthcare care uh, coverage to millions of Americans that did not have it before. And you know, I'm an academic. Looking at the data from that, we've improved the health mm-hmm. of millions of Americans as a result. Uh, but there's more we can do to, to build upon that. And that's why I think it's important, the importance of recognizing the role that policy plays, especially federal policy plays in our health care crisis, and the need to have more frontline doctors and health care workers in federal government uh, working for these solutions. Uh, that's part of the reason why I've chosen to run for Congress, because there is a lack of doctors. There's only 19 doctors in Congress. Mm-hmm. So what an, another doctor uh, would do? You know, Lauren Underwood, nurse from this area. Yes. I mean, she's doing big things there, right? She knows what's going on with maternal health, and she's uh, changing the narrative about how we treat uh, uh, women in this country.
0: We're also, um, you know, we're still seeing prohibitive costs impacting historically marginalized populations the exactly. most. Exactly.
1: So affordability is something that is on the minds of uh, so many, and there's a trade-off, right? If we – to reduce our health care expenditures, we need to cover less people. If we cover more people, the costs go up. But I think the real fundamental question is we need to decide what is the minimal level of health that we expect everyone to have to attain and have access to, and how do we as a country with so much resources and ingenuity Mm -hmm. and people committed to – Health equity. How do we uh, achieve that by honoring the shared humanity of everyone that is suffering in this country?
0: Yeah, and picking up off the the stats you, you mentioned earlier, the latest data from the Association of American Medical Colleges show only about six percent of physicians in the U.S. identify as Black or African American. Six percent. My thoughts are, you know, we can improve admissions to medical school. We can, you know, maybe work to remove the bias that's involved in that process. Does that solve the issue?
1: That, that, that does not solve the issue. That, that's part of it. We talked about the pipeline. How do we increase the pipeline uh, into into medicine? But it's also an issue of when you have attained a certain level of status or achievement within the healthcare system and you're treating patients. Uh, how are you valued? Like we are more than just numbers on a spreadsheet. We are talked about in ways that we have a certain percentage of doctors on our staff, but it's more than that. We you know, are we getting to be part of the decision making process as far as how we treat our patients, mm-hmm. treat our trainees, and not just relegated to, well, you want to be part of the diversity and inclusion efforts for the institution. That that extra uh, unpaid, unrecognized labor, which mm-hmm. we do, right? Yeah. We recognize that it's important and that it's good. I think that's, that's a good burden for us to carry. We have to do it. Um, but it's that's the role for all of us, not just the, the black people or the people of color within an institution.
0: So I, I want to shift now to uh, 2016. This is when you were propelled into the national spotlight after 7-7, as it became known in in, in Dallas. You appeared on, on several uh, TV and radio and other media outlets because you had just worked on uh, – some white officers trying to save their lives after they were targeted in a mass shooting. Why do you think your words that day got so much attention?
1: Yeah, so that, this, this is a press conference a few days after this mass shooting, this tragedy, which I still think about every day. It's kind of always with me.
0: It's over seven
1: years ago. That was seven summers ago. And uh, I still get asked about this press conference they, you know, years later, and people talk about it being my press conference when it there were several people that talked. It was 45 minutes long. But the two minutes where I spoke, which you're referring to, resonated. And I, I think it's because I talked about the things that were unsaid at that time. Gun violence, police brutality, racism, health care crisis. But I, I also put my, talked about my experience, what it meant for me as a black doctor, uh, trying to hold all these things that were true together my desire to save these injured police officers, but also my fear of police officers. My role as a black doctor, trying not to cause more uh, conflict, but also understanding what racism means on a personal basis, but also for our patients and uh, systems. And trying to hold those things together and to put those out without thinking about it, I think that's why those words resonated.
0: Hmm. Meanwhile, in therapy, it became clear that you were struggling internally, right? You had sessions that would start off about the shooting, but then you end up digging much deeper into trauma that you had admittedly buried inside of you. How did you feel to start to become vulnerable in that way?
1: Uh, extremely uncomfortable <laughs> about that. And even now talking about it. I mean,
0: it comes through in the in the text, right. for sure.
1: Uh, my, my wife is kind of a key figure in my life and in the book. Uh, about helping me navigate the post-traumatic growth after this incident, which really, I felt like a failure to the police officers or families and really the Dallas community, Uh, even though I knew that there was not much I could have done to save these officers. You you. felt
0: like a failure because they ultimately died. Exactly,
1: exactly. So dealing with that after the event, um, I still went to work, I was functioning. I think people that go through trauma know how they can get through the day to day and people never don't know, but my wife knew. And finally got me to therapy. And it was a therapist that helped me begin to unpack these issues, which I expected to be about the shooting only. Mm-hmm. But they're very skilled. You go in for one thing, and there's 10 other things that they unpack. So it led to a long, ongoing uh, reevaluation of my life and what I wanted to do going forward.
0: Yeah, and as we're talking, I think back to Michael Brown in, in Ferguson, Missouri, and uh, Chicago and Laquan McDonald. Whose, whose bodies laid in the street for hours instead of actually being rushed to the hospital, right? So I want to turn back to us talking about solutions again. Your subtitle of your book, it ends with how to heal. Uh, you talked about the book being a roadmap to healing. So what do we do? How do we heal from what we know is blatant racism? Right.
1: It, it was key for me to make this uh, hopeful at the end. And part of that is just we need to reckon with our history and how uh, racism at the structural level still permeates so much of our society. That way we can understand what is happening now and prepare for a better future. So education is part of that. Uh, I wanted it to inspire folks. That's why I chose the personal narratives to pull you into the story. Mm -hmm. But along the way, we explore these bigger issues. And i know, drop in stats and sources so you can learn along the way. But at the end, we talk about a lot of heavy things. But let's make a path towards healing mm-hmm. moving forward and that was the ultimate goal with that this book
0: Talk more about your drive that's pushing you to run for Congress
1: yeah I, I, after the, the shooting and after finishing the book this book I realized that there's only so much I can do within the hospital to be part of the healing of my community and the nation uh, by the time patients get to me due to gunshot uh, uh, gunshot injuries or health care uh, uh, issues, Mm -hmm. it's too late. That that hospital is too late. There's only so much I can do. But I need to intervene upstream and understanding how federal policy can be part of that. And I've seen what's possible. I worked as a uh, congressional health policy advisor uh, last year serving with Democratic leaders to craft monumental legislation. The gun safety bill, the Bipartisan Safety Communities Act, is probably the one that people know Mm
0: -hmm.
1: know most well. But a lot of other things. And I saw that Congress can do big things quickly on behalf of millions of people with the right sort of leaders in place, yeah. and that's what's pushing me to run for Congress to be part of that solution.
0: There are practical steps that can be taken to end this epidemic of gun violence. Don't exactly. you think?
1: Oh, absolutely. And uh, and the uh, the bill that was passed last year was a start. You know, enhanced background checks, of money money for violence intervention programs, uh, gun trafficking. But there are more policy things we can we can do. And I talk about it from the from the perspective of I'm an Air Force veteran. I've trained on these weapons. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm a trauma surgeon. So I've treated patients and their families. I've also lost family members to gun violence. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of nuances about what this means that I can that I understand that I can bring to the table as we talk about future solutions to just save needless death and suffering to gun violence.
0: Yeah. In the minute we have left, Dr. Williams, I mean, who is this book? When you sat down to write this, who did you have in mind and what's the overall message that if they take nothing else away, what do you want them to walk away with?
1: When you're done with this book, I want people to understand that each of us has a role to create justice, you know, today on create justice on earth today. This book at its core is about identity and the roles we can play to just make the world a better place. And when you finish the book, the next day, I hope you see the world differently and act, and act differently than you did before you read the book.
0: So it's a call to action?
1: no oh, definitely a call to action, no doubt. It was meant to get people off their butts and do something to create justice.
0: Dr. Brian H. Williams is a surgeon and the author of The Bodies Keep Coming, Dispatches from a Black Trauma Surgeon on Racism, Violence, and How We Heal. Thank you so much, Dr.
1: Great book. Thank you very much for, for having me on the show.
0: This Reset Conversation was produced by me and Landon Jones. It was edited by Meha Ahmed and Linnea Dominic. We have important conversations like this every day on Reset. We host interviews daily from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. You can tune in to WBEZ 91.5 FM or stream live at WBEZ.org slash live. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We'll talk soon.